And as you're turning there, I want to draw your attention to uh, a short article that was on the back, is on the back of your bulletin this morning. It is, Who Really Elects Politicians? It's a timely little article. I didn't write it. But uh, Tom Zobrist wrote it. And if you were paying attention to uh, the Cubs, his son Ben was the NVP. And I um, thought you might particularly find that of interest. Uh, Tom is a fellow pastor in our uh, brotherhood or sisterhood of churches called the International Fundamental Churches of America. And uh, his son had the opportunity of uh, winning a second World Series. Uh, his first was with Kansas City and now with uh, the Cubs. So very uh, great time for them. But not to get distracted with the sports. The real issue here is who really elects politicians? And I think that uh, what he says here is very helpful. And I want us to think carefully too as Christians, just by way of statement here, and that we really ought to be in prayer this week, prayerfully thinking about our personal responsibility within our country, that we would prayerfully consider our vote and uh, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking of a particular text of Scripture, 1 Corinthians. It's one I had mentioned a little bit earlier in this series in 1 Peter, but Paul uh, talks about in chapter 7 that when God calls us as believers to himself, he calls us from various positions and places. Some of us may be married to unbelievers, some of us may be in slavery. Some of us may be um, ethnically different than another. And Paul tells the Corinthians that to each calling that you are called to, don't seek to change that calling. But with one exception, he talks to the slave. He says, look, if you have opportunity to gain your freedom, do what you can. This is in verse 21. Do what you can to take advantage of any freedom that you can gain it might be something that I think is applicable to our upcoming vote. We have a very difficult position, I think, as Christians of knowing which way to go, and I'm not here to tell you which way to vote. But if God gives us the opportunity to vote for personal freedoms to worship, we ought to do our best to take care of those and try to advance those to the best of our ability prayerfully. But then in the end, we have to trust God He's not promised us a country where we would have complete religious freedom. In fact, he said, following Christ, expect persecution. But if we have the opportunity, let's take advantage of it. But let's not lose heart. God is sovereign over all. He knows tomorrow, and he knows today. He knows eternity, and we can rest in his hands. I guess in some ways it leads into the introduction of this message here this morning. I had recently read an article, I think actually I heard it first, and when I heard it I went and Googled it, see if I could find the facts of it, that right here in Pennsylvania, the total spending on advertising for this election has reached $144 million, and that's for the Senate race like the Senate race. And the next one after that, 40 million 
was spent in the next race less. So, so, so 144 here, 100 million was spent in the state of, little state of New Hampshire. That's a lot of nasty attack ads that could be purchased with $144 million. And as distasteful as attack ads are, they're a political tradition. In fact, it could be argued that the ads that we see today are in fact tamer than the ads that were penned by some of our founding fathers. In fact, in 1800, Thomas Jefferson hired a writer named James Callender to attack then-sitting president John Adams. Jefferson, through his writer, described Adams as a repulsive pedant, a gross hypocrite, a hideous, hermaphrodical character, which has neither the force or firmness of a man, nor the gentleness or sensibility of a woman. That's pretty intense. It's okay. I mean, it, we, we live in a very... I think tamed down world when it, terms, it comes in terms of attack ads when you read some of the things that were said in the past. But I think we could probably all agree at this point in our political cycle, while we are certainly anxious about the outcomes, we'll be happy when it's done. But the truth is, insults and reviling are still going to continue. That's our world. But you know what America needs? America, yes, needs a revival, needs Jesus, but the America needs the church to be an oasis. And this is to what we were called, Peter says. To what were you called? He says this in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this to you were called. And he's talking, he says, finally, all of you, and he's talking to Christians. To this you have been called, this countercultural community called the church. The church is to be a, a community of believers where divisions and hostilities of the world have been overcome, so therefore in the church family they're, they're unwelcome. They're not to be here. They're to be unwelcome. And it's to this countercultural community that we were called. And as Peter is writing here, he's talking to believers about how to trim their wicks, burn their candles bright, be a light in this world. And if we want to be a light in the world, we have to start submitting in our hearts to one another in the church. Not to the institution itself, but to the people who make up the church. People who are members, people who are leaders, and the leaders and the members. He's saying to us, submit in your heart to one another. How do I see this? Well, in verses 8 and 9, he's talking about submission as being the issue. He says in verse 8, Beloved, excuse me, finally, all of you have these five things in your heart. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this is to which you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. And submission is the issue here in this verse. And when God's word says through Peter, finally, all of you have this, then we have a choice to make. We have a choice to joyfully submit or we disobey. And obedience is the submission of our will in worship to the Heavenly Father. And when our Father speaks to us through the Word of God, we are to sweetly obey from the heart. But some of us may at times resist that sweetness, and we're often like that child who is told by the Father to sit, and then she says, yeah, I'm sitting on the outside, on the inside, I'm standing. Submission is the victory of the spirit over the flesh. And to submit in our hearts is where the real spirituality is, or where non-spirituality is made plain. And the key word here is in your heart. All five of these things that he's talking about are things that are inside of our heart. The secret place that no one sees but God. See, Christ himself had a secret place. It was the garden. He prayed to his heavenly Father about his Father's will for him to go to the cross, and yet he said, Nevertheless, my Father, not my will, but yours be done. And this submission in his heart allowed him to then purposefully not revile when he was reviled. This is what Peter's alluding to. In fact, he, we've, we've seen these texts back when he was talking to servants. He said in chapter 2, verse 23, he says, and when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but, when he, but then he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, Peter is saying, look, here in, in your relationships within the church, you are in the same way to submit to one another so that you're not submission in the heart, so you're not reviling one another when hurt comes. You're called to be a blessing so that you might receive a blessing. And so let's think a little bit about that aspect of being a blessing, preparing our hearts so that we can be a blessing, and then what it means to obtain a blessing. What is Peter talking about there? Does this mean that we therefore somehow merit our salvation with God? Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. But I think that it's helpful for us to remember that we are not able to be a blessing to others if we're not willing to submit in our hearts first. And we certainly will not be like Christ if we don't deal with our own heart first and purpose to submit in our hearts. Let's look at these five descriptions. The first one. He says, unity of mind. I think the King James translates this, all of one mind. How do you have unity of mind? How do you think in terms of what other people are thinking? How does that happen? I did some word study here and this week, and I, and I, was, I was thinking about and looking and studying this, this phrase, this word. The word literally means to come to see someone else's viewpoints. 
to have your thoughts and your heart attitudes, as it were, and this is an image that kind of came up through this, as if they were taking a walk down the road, your thoughts and your attitudes are walking down the road, and you see someone else's thoughts and attitudes down on the other side of the hedge, and you look ahead and there's an opportunity for them to converge, and then you begin walking down the same path together. Your thoughts and your attitudes walking the same path. Back in June, our elders met in Montrose to begin working on a common set of values for our church family. We started discussing them together and we're getting very close to a completion of a first draft in these things. But the goal of this was to help us as leaders to have a unity of mind so that we can be a blessing to our church family. And their church family can then be a blessing to others. And to have a unity of mind requires elders, it requires parents, it requires church members to allow their thoughts and their minds to walk the same path together. It means thinking less of my vision, it means thinking less of my goals and working for the health of one family. The second heart aspect here in submission is the word sympathy. I think in the King James it has having compassion one of another. And maybe that is in some ways a more helpful translation. Because it means to feel in one's heart just like someone else feels. Abraham Lincoln had a unique ability to sympathize with people. He had a very unique ability, even his enemies, he was able to imagine what it must be like for them to have this animosity. And in that process, it made him a great shepherd for the whole nation. Even in the greatest of crises that our nation has ever faced, he had the capacity to think through people and with people. Brotherly love. This is the word that we get our Philadelphia from. The city of brotherly shove, right? Actually, it's here, actually, interestingly, to help us understand this word um, in non-biblical writings. Now, we have Bible writings like the New Testament that we have here, but, but there were letters and in, in communication written in the first century that we have and we can look at. And in most cases, when this word was used, brotherly love, it was used to describe the feeling of belonging to an in-group. Of belonging to an in-group. And if you've ever experienced the feeling of being in an in-group, it's a very powerful feeling. It's a place of protection. It's a place of warmth. It's a place that you know that you're going to be listened to. It's someone who's identifying with who you are. It's loving. It's sharing. And it's the absence of fear. And in the New Testament, this concept is used to describe the Christian church. And, interestingly enough, it should be the place where there are no in-groups because everybody's a part of the in-group. And if we're creating in-groups within the church, we may not be contributing to the unity of mind that walks down the same path together. We're fostering brotherly shove in that case. The fourth one is tender heart. 
It's very similar to the word sympathy, but it focuses more on the, the, the emotion of pity that moves a person towards action. It's the Samaritan who's, who's going to Jerusalem and he sees the man who's hurt in the pit and he has, he's filled with sympathy for him. He is compelled to action. It's the same word that was used when Christ looked upon the multitudes and he was moved to compassion. Do you know what Jesus did when he was moved to compassion? He sent out the disciples to go out and do acts of mercy. And the fifth here is a humble mind. The King James has the word courteous. And while it does carry the idea, courteous carries that idea of a respectfulness of one another, the root idea beneath it is the humility of mind that allows us to be courteous to one another. And when heat comes and when thorns come, what comes? Is it more thorns? Or is it bitterness? Is it reviling? For reviling? Or is it, is it gentleness? Is it meekness? Is it humility of mind? There's just no possible way that we will be able to be a blessing to one another if we are not in our heart learning these practices of submission. In verse 9 he says, look, so this is to what you were called. This is what you were supposed to be. And in verse 9, the last half, he says, you know, so this is so that you can inherit a blessing. What does it mean, then, that you will obtain a blessing, is my translation. I like the King James better here. It says, inherit blessing. I think it's better. Because we inherit more than wealth from our parents. And this fits within the flow of Peter's thinking. What else do we inherit from our parents beyond wealth? Sometimes we inherit a laugh that is annoying. Every time I laugh and I get like really into that laugh, Abby says to me, will you stop that? I didn't marry my father-in-law. And you got to see a little bit of my father last week. And maybe you saw a little bit of him or a little me of him. And for better or worse, we do inherit qualities and personality and pieces of our parents. You know, even adopted children are molded by the parents of their non-biological family, parents' personalities. What is it that we inherit from Christ? Christians inherit the Spirit of Christ, also known as the Holy Spirit, who submits to the will of the Father and the Son. We also inherit the blessings of a relationship with other members of the body of Christ. We are of one another if we are called by his name. I know, I know I've been, Christmas kind of came up in the pre-service here, the, the, this main service a little bit, talking about those things. And I have to admit, I've been thinking about Christmas lately. I haven't put on the Christmas music yet. But my mind was moving this week to It's a Wonderful Life. Love that story. You remember that part where George and Mary were just wed? They were newlyweds. They were getting ready to go off on their honeymoon, and it's like pouring rain, you know? And there's like this big run on the bank going on. And the driver says, hey, I think there's a, there's a run on your, your father's bank, you know? And uh, George stops the car, and they all run into the bank, and... 
And uh, George is looking around the building and loan, and everyone's like wanting their money out. They're trying to take it out of the bank. And what is, uh, do you remember what George says? He says, the money isn't here. It's in you all. He says, no, 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 you're, not, you're thinking about this place wrong, you know? Like, it's not like I got the money back here in the safe. It's actually in, it's in so-and-so's house, and it's in the Kennedy's house, and a hundred other houses. And then he's asking, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to foreclose on all these people? You pull out your money? You know, we're often a lot like those people who make the run on the bank. We forget that Christ belongs to all of us and is in all of us together. And when we make a demand on the bank that everything go my way, we destroy the unity and the peace of the church. The church is to be countercultural. We're exiles, we're sojourners, but we're the people of God, a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation. And we're to submit to one another so that we can be a blessing and the certainty of eternal blessing is ours as the church, as the world witnesses the, the, the movement of, of blessing in our own church family. Are you contributing to the light of the gospel? Are you putting a bushel over it? You can put a bushel over the light by refusing to submit to one another in your heart. And if your thoughts and your attitudes are distant from the membership of the church family or the leadership, then you're walking on a different path and you may be able to put upon a good appearance of submission, but remember, God is the one who sees in secret. He is the one to whom all reward or judgment will come from. So how do we submit in our hearts to one another? And I put in our bulletins a little bit of a practical outline at this point in the message. How do I submit in my heart to one another? Peter quotes directly from Psalm 34 here. He looks to the word of God for direction. In some translations, what I appreciate about some modern translations is that they will indent, like the New King James will indent. So you can see that this is coming from the Old Testament. And this is what Peter is doing. He's looking to the Word of God for direction. And this quotation here is used to describe a person who desires love of life and they look for, for good days. They want to see good days come again. Well, we all want that. But it's an expression of future faith, faith in the future return of Christ. What is it? What kind of things will be true of this person who is looking forward to the return of Christ? They're going to be contrary to the way of the world in which insult is the way you get to the top and you, you tear down everyone around you. No, this is going to be a person who submits to one another from the heart. And how do we do this in the church? Well, first we refrain from speaking from an evil heart. Verse 10 says, Whoever desires to see love, love, life, and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. That is difficult, especially if you're hurting. A young lady once told John Wesley, 
I think I know what my talent is. And Wesley said, well, tell me what this talent is. And she replied, I think it is to speak my mind. And Wesley said, well, I think that uh, it would be good if you bury that talent. The tongue is a, it's an unruly thing. It's prone to sin. It's like it's wired hard, it's like directly wired to the heart. Remember how James describes it? He said, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The problem is not speaking per se, but it's the speaking from a heart that has evil in it. You know, it's been said it might be better not to say anything, but it is best to remove the evil. And it won't be done, and it won't happen until we confess it. In fact, we might not say anything. We might use deceit, actually, to cover up. We may put on kindness on the exterior, but beneath the surface we have the knife. It is right there. No, this is a removal of the heart attitude of of evil thoughts and attitudes. And so we have to turn away from evil thoughts and attitudes in verse 11. He says, and let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, but let him turn, verse 11, away from evil and do good. Turn away from evil. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to, to... And it's the power of the resurrection, and it's the only way to overcome evil that's in our heart. We have to repent of it. We have to confess it. Don't take an evil heart to a friend. Take it to Christ. Take it to Christ. And if you're a friend, and you are a good friend, and you're hearing the bitterness of the heart come out, you need to point that person to Christ and tell them that they need to take it to him for forgiveness. It is impossible for you to submit to God and in a way that he will honor unless you do this. And this is true of any situation. Third, focus your thoughts and attitudes on doing good to your enemy. This is the second part. Doing good. Sadly, when evil thoughts and attitudes are about a person, they become like an enemy. They may not really be an enemy, but they feel like an enemy. How do we do this? Well, we have to turn away from those attitudes, yes, but that's a start. We've got to actually then move in a positive direction. We've got to, by faith, we've got to move towards doing good. How are you going to do this? It's a great question because I can't answer that for everyone in this room. You might have to take some time to sit and think. You might have to think about that person positively and think about their life situation. Maybe in the sympathy of your heart, sympathize with that individual to say, why are they hurting and why are they lashing out at me? What dreams have they had that have been dashed? Are they suffering through hardship and As you begin to do this, you're going to begin to get a sympathy of hearts. And then you can evaluate your personal relationship. If I've been keeping distance, if I've been not allowing them into my inner circle, do I have an inner circle? Perhaps it's time for me to break down that inner circle. 
Maybe we can plan an activity where we can include them. This will show them brotherly love. The fourth here is bless others with a willingness to walk on the same path. In verse 11, the latter part, it says, let him seek peace and pursue it. Follow it through. This is like the idea of going on the same path. And peace requires a unity of thought and attitude walking on the same path. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. This is not peace at all cost. Because as a father, I know that I have to disturb the peace on a Sunday morning to get the family going out of bed. Like, it has to happen at times. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of peace, the ruffling of peace that has to happen to get inert things moving. That has to happen. But are we talk? what I'm talking about here, and I believe what Peter is talking about here is the, the responsiveness within a family to go along and rejoice with one another. An illustration is coming to my mind. I had read Dick Gregory's book on ministry a few years ago, and one of the things he talked about within his family that they made a matter of priority was to rejoice with those who were rejoicing, and the whole family was going to celebrate with the ones who were celebrating. And I look at that family and I realize, you know, that has contributed to some sound unity within that family. In the same way, there is a submissiveness that must occur, a willingness to go along the same path, and even in a church family. I mean, it doesn't mean that we are necessarily, I mean, we all have things that we do. We have to have a willingness to help with, with programming even that we might not necessarily enjoy. I'm going to give a very explicit example here this morning. In December, December 4th, Sunday evening, we're going to be having an Awana program, Christmas program. Don't sit home if, it's, if Awana is not your thing. If you could be present for an Awana Christmas program, it's an opportunity to show your support for the outreach of this church family. It is an opportunity to pursue peace. It is an opportunity to walk the same path. And I know it's not possible to give all of your time to everything that could be done here in the church family. It's not possible. I can't do it. But we've got to be careful that we take the time to purposely pursue the same paths with one another. We've got to be careful that our convictions don't prevent us either from walking the same path with other believers. We may have a Romans 14 preference or conviction that is true for us, but it may not be true for another. Are we allowing that to interfere our walk with other believers? We have to be very careful that we're making the main things the main things. And lastly... Verse 12 shows that we ought to pray. We ought to pray believing that God will honor our submissiveness. God will reward this. Verse 12, it starts out with a, 
you know, it's a warning and a promise in here, and I'm focusing more on the promise side, but the warning is equally true. I don't want you to misunderstand that. But God has set his face against those who are doing evil. They're not going to prosper, and they're definitely not going to inherit eternal life. But yet the eyes of the Lord are on those who are righteous, who in their hearts are submissive, and he honors those prayers. What greater prayer is this than our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prayed to his Father that when he left, in John chapter 17, he said that they would, we would be one even as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. And that we would become perfectly one so that the world would know. If you pray for that believing, God's going to reward that prayer. If we pray that God would move our thoughts and our hearts towards paths of submission one to another, God's going to answer that prayer and he will get the glory and we will get the joy. See, the church is to be a community of believers where the divisions and the hostilities of the world have been overcome and that we keep all that out there so that we become an oasis to everyone who's looking for peace and freedom from all of that. If we want to be a light in this world, we need to start submitting in our hearts one to another, not to the institution, but to who we are as the people of God with one another. This is the idea here. Submit in our hearts one to another so that we can bless others and we will then inherit blessing. I'm going to take a moment to pray. We're going to transition to communion now. It's kind of a hard break, I know. But after I pray, Danny and Emily DeCrody are going to come and sing a song as the men will come forward and prepare the, the communion. And I would just encourage you to be prayerfully thinking as they sing and examining our hearts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this morning. The word of God is a mirror. We look into it and we, I know I don't like to see what I see when I see myself in it. And I pray, Father, that I wouldn't be a hearer, but I would be a doer. That we would be within our hearts seeking to walk paths of unifying peace together with one another for your glory. And so, Father, we're getting ready now in a few moments to remember what you did for us on the cross. You said... In your word that when you would come, you would not, there would be no deceit found in your mouth. And that when you are, would be reviled, there would be no reviling that would come from you. Lord, you did that knowing that we are so full of evil and reviling. And you did it so that we might have freedom and forgiveness and that you'd break the power of the sin that is within our hearts.
And so, Father, I pray that in this moment of remembrance that we would be ready to take that that wretchedness and we would put it at your feet, Lord. Knowing that it is already forgiven. Knowing that we have complete and utter ability to come into your presence and lay that at your feet and find forgiveness there and unlimited forgiveness. So, Father, I pray that we would do that in this quietness of heart here this morning. We ask this in your precious name we pray. Amen. come together walking in the spirit there's much to be done we will come reaching out from our comforts and they will know us by our
Thank you, Danny and Emily. That text comes from John chapter 14. They will know us by our love. And uh, the words of Jesus, and I felt like that was a fitting location before we take part in this celebration of what he did. And this, just so there's no confusion about what, what is involved with what we're doing, the scriptures are very clear that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is not a means to grace. Participation in this means that you have been saved by grace alone. And the outflow of the heart is desiring to participate with this gathering around what Jesus Christ did. For, for God to love the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The brokenness and the death here paid for life out of God's great love. And the brokenness of humility that takes place in our hearts sends that love out to the world. It has to go out from us if we have experienced Calvary's love. And I want to encourage you, if you have put your faith in Christ alone, you have called out to him from the heart for the forgiveness of your sins, to partake in this. But yet I also warn that if you are dealing with sin in your heart and you're, you're denying the, the truths that are here, I would encourage you to, to don't participate. This is broken freely for you. But you could, if you are within your heart struggling with a matter of unforgiveness or you are struggling in your heart with a matter of sin, confess it here and now and come and partake. And so let's take a moment to element by element consider and reflect and give thanks. I'm going to ask Jim, if he would, give thanks for the broken bread which represents his broken body. Father, as we come before you in this, this moment, in this time, as we do reflect upon the symbol of your body, your body which was broken for each one.
Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that. took the cup and gave thanks for it as well. David, assure if you would give thanks for this shed blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Gracious Heavenly Father,
This cup is the new covenant of the New Testament in Jesus' blood. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Hallelujah for the cross. It washes away, it makes us whiter than snow, as we sung, and gives us cause for rejoicing and the message of hope to the world. May we be an oasis of that hope. And uh, we're going to dismiss here in just a moment. I'm wondering if, Marilyn, you wouldn't mind playing 625 doxology for us. It's been nice to hear Marilyn playing in the service this morning. And uh, just thankful for that. Let's, uh, Let's stand together, and then we'll dismiss with a word of prayer to the fellowship. God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Jim, close the service and also ask a blessing on the fellowship to follow.